Well, welcome to another bonus edition of Planet Possible. I'm delighted to be joined today by Gillian Blythe. Gillian's the CEO of Water New Zealand. Welcome, Gillian. Thank you. And Terry Fuller, a familiar voice to many listeners. Terry is the Chief Executive of Cywin. Hello. Hello, lovely to see you both. So we're all here together in the UK and we thought we'd take the opportunity to record a special bonus edition of Planet Possible for you. We wanted to talk about something that's really significant that's happening in Aotearoa, New Zealand at the moment and over the coming 12 months or so, which is water reform. So Gillian, just give us a bit of a feel for what is water reform? There's a number of elements to it. So back in 2016, there was a contamination event in Havelock North, where unfortunately about 5,000 people got sick and a number of people died. And that really focused the attention on making sure that our drinking water is safe. And so one of the things that has occurred is that we have established a new regulator, Tomata Arawai, um, which is responsible for regulating drinking water. They will also have various responsibilities for wastewater and stormwater. So that's one element. A second element is that, um, unlike the UK, where you've got you know, large um, entities providing water services to, to communities, we've got 67 councils across the country. New Zealand is 5 million people. Mm-hmm. So you've got 67 councils that are providing drinking water, wastewater and stormwater services to the public. And so the plan is to bring those together into four entities. We haven't got as far as naming them. They are currently <laughs> entity A, B, C and D. It's sketchy. It's sketchy. <laughs> and we're going through the legislative process for that. I was at Select Committee just before I came away and so there's a piece of legislation that's got to be passed that will then allow those establishment units to be created and the plan is that it will have drinking water, wastewater and stormwater responsibilities. It is a huge change. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is that over the years... We've seen that because councils have naturally budgets to manage, haven't been able to spend enough on water services. And so one of the pieces that we're saying is that the infrastructure deficit that's at least been estimated is something like 120 to $185 billion needs to be spent over the next 30 years. Now, in the UK context, that may not sound... You know, it sounds like a big number because we're talking billions, yeah. but that's effectively you know, a double, possibly treble, or even a quadrupling every single year for 30 years. Wow. That's huge. Yeah, and that's water, wastewater, stormwater, yes. the whole lot. Good grief. So I know from a previous episode of Planet Possible, we talked about something that I thought was fascinating, Tamana Otawai. So tell us a little bit more about what that is and how that fits into water reform. Tamana Otawai is um, something that's come from our resource management legislation. There was a national policy statement written on freshwater management back in 2017 um, and revised in 2020. And the concept is to create a hierarchy of obligations. So the first is the obligation is to the health and the well-being of the water body and the ecosystems. The second is to the health needs of people, so drinking water. And then the third is the ability of people and um, communities to provide for their social, economic and cultural well-being. We talk about um, wanting to protect and to enhance the mori, so the life force of water. And that will be written into, I guess, legislation that accompanies water reform. Absolutely. So it's already in the legislation that established Tamata Arawai. Mm -hmm. The legislation basically says if you have a power, a function or a duty under that act, you have to give effect to Tamana or Tawai. And so what that has meant is that under the, the structure of the regulator, there is a there is a board 
but there is also a Māori advisory group, the Māori Ropu, and the way it works, there are some common members of the board and, and, the, and the Māori Ropu. If there is recommendations from the Māori group to the board, the board has to consider those, but if they were not to take them into account, they need to respond in an annual report that's tabled with Parliament and explain why they are not taking those recommendations into account. Terry, I want to just come to you and hear your reflections on what you're hearing from Gillian and that approach, really. Obviously, you've spent a lot of your career working in the kind of UK context for water and environmental management. So what do you think? It is fascinating. I would use that word, but also it just fills me with hope as well, actually, hearing that. It's something I can't find the right word yet. It's deeper than fascinating. It, it, it's, it's hopeful. And the reason I say that is because if you look around the world, actually, the most significant partner in any water governance system is actually the public, whether you call them a customer, a consumer, it is the public, the most significant partner. So they're not just a body of people that we're supplying water to, they absolutely are a partner in making all of this work, particularly as we have to be more responsible about the way we treat and manage water going forward. So to be grounding your new governance structures and your new approach in an understanding of the public, and in this case in particular, an Indigenous people, I think is really exciting. And I mean, just hearing little bits that we've talked about earlier today, Gillian, about you know how grounded the Maori belief systems are in in nature, and you know the guidance that gives actually in terms of responsible management of water and our environment, I think is tremendous, and it really puts me in mind actually of my experiences at COP26 whereby it was quite clear throughout COP26 that there was this recognition of the need to listen to the indigenous population in countries all around the world. The narrative has moved on from being one of we ought to listen to indigenous people there's almost a out of respect we ought to to actually a realization that that's where a lot of the answers are going to lie so it's not that we ought to we absolutely need to and there was a groundswell i i thought at cop of recognition that indigenous populations all around the world are able to provide guidance and a fresh thinking and approach which we've just not been able to find uh, using our traditional methods and by dipping into the traditional pool of people that we normally go to for ideas Mm. so I, I find it really hopeful. I agree I mean I think talking with our members you know there is a real desire to understand and to think about what we can do to to promote you know a sustainable management of the water environment and I think the Tamana Otawai framework is going to enable a deeper conversation than perhaps has happened previously. And I think in relation to that, Gillian, you were talking earlier as well about the level of awareness that the public in New Zealand have about water. Just taking UK experience, we find a real lack of awareness of water in terms of how it gets around, how it gets out of your tap, what happens when you flush the toilet, etc., um, which is a real problem. You know, we have to raise that awareness. But it seemed to me it's even more buried within New Zealand because of the way it's provided through the local authorities and the fact it's just an element of a much bigger bill. It, is, it isn't even a bill in its own right. So I think you've particularly got a bit of a, a mountain to I, climb there. I, I think we do. In Auckland, it's slightly different because water care is um, a council controlled organisation and does send a direct bill. But in Wellington, technically, I get my water from Wellington Water, but Wellington Water, the revenue that it gets from me paying my bill is via the council. 
unless I delve into the the details of those many emails you get from different people, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have that information. And it was only recently that I looked and and I happened because I'm now sufficiently interested in water to do this sort of thing. I've actually go and you know there was a breakdown for every dollar how much is spent. And I think when I looked at the stormwater or the wastewater and the drinking water, it was about 35 cents of my 100 cents is spent on, on water. Mm. Which is actually quite, strikes me as quite a significant proportion, actually. And therefore, it ought to be more important and higher profile. And I think the other bit is that, you know, in Wellington, we don't have metres. And again, different parts of the country, there are metres. The conversations you might have with your family about, you know, is that a three-minute shower or a ten-minute shower? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, certainly in terms of for, for Māori, water is a, is a treasure, it's a tonga. And so the whole conversation about are we looking after it, both in terms of, you know, at one level, you know, the consumption of water in the household and in terms of whether it's an appropriate quantity. There's obviously an investment required that if if we all used lots of water, Mm -hmm. then there is a need for new sources of water, whether it's groundwater or new reservoirs, Mm -hmm. and then there is costs consequences with all of that. And certainly in terms of Water New Zealand runs a national benchmarking um, has done for a number of years. So in terms of New Zealand, the amount of water that is lost between source and the tap on average is about 20%. But for some districts, for a variety of reasons, it's as high as 50%. There will be many reasons behind that. Some of that will be because, you know, there have been different parts of the country have had earthquakes or they just haven't been able to spend what you need to on renewals. But when you start to focus people's minds on water is a treasure then you start to have, a, I think, a different conversation with the, with the consumer, with the user of water. Does it feel like you can tell stories using Tamana Otawai in a way that perhaps are harder to do when we, we talk here in the UK about the water cycle? You know, it's one of the first things that you can probably remember learning when you're at primary school, isn't it, is the water cycle. Is Tamana Otawai used, as a, if you like, as a device to help people connect with water? I think it will be. One of the pieces, and I'm very conscious that I'm speaking as a, a UK citizen, I'm also a dual citizen in terms mm. of New Zealand, so I'm, I wasn't brought up in, in New Zealand and I'm not Māori, but in terms of some of the stories that are passed down and recognising the stories are different depending on which part of the country you're in, but in terms of one of the stories is in terms of Ranganui, the Sky Father, and um, Papa Tanuku, the Earth Mother, in terms of when they were separated the sadness from being separated, tears is the rain. The tears of Earth Mother uh, form the rivers, the streams, the lakes. And one of the pieces that I think is really helpful in terms of some of the stories, the kidneys of Earth Mother are wetlands. Your kidneys clearly cleanse your blood. Wetlands help to cleanse mm-hmm. and, and restore the, the mori, the life force of water. And I think those sorts of conversations can be a really helpful way of highlighting what happens and what needs to happen in the water cycle. So Terry, if I come to you thinking about um, what Gillian's just described, I mean, is something like that ever possible, do you think, in the UK context, that degree of storytelling? Obviously, not specifically what we've just talked about, because that's very specific to Aotearoa, to New Zealand. But can you imagine people connecting with water in that kind of way in the UK? Well, 
we are a nation of storytellers. I mean, we have folklores and all sorts of uh, storytelling history. We've probably lost our way a little bit on that in uh, in recent generations, but um, we, we have that heritage, so I'd like to think so. Mm-hmm. It's not my area of expertise, but um, we have to find a way of doing that, though. Mm-hmm. There is a lack of connectivity, emotional connectivity, I think, between a lot of people in the, the, the general public and the way we manage water and our environment. And and I think listening to Gillian's story, that moves me, you know, mm. that really connects me at an emotional level. And we have to find the ways of telling that, that stories to illustrate this idea that the consumers of water, which of course is all of us, are a partner, a part of a partnership. We're not just there to receive and, and take for granted what we get. So yes, we need to find the ways of, of mm. telling the stories um, or imagery using art and, and mm. music, etc. I, I know in talking with um, various people from around New Zealand, older generations might talk about how they collected certain types of fish, watercress, whitebait, and some of those, the ability to be able to do some of that collection has been lost because the water environment has degraded. And I think when you talk in those sorts of of ways, you can imagine being in in a part of Derbyshire and having a conversation about was there a I want to say a freshwater cray, but whatever we would have actually had, <laughs> I've sort of you know spent too long away. But in terms of being able to say what did you, what were you able mm. to do three, four decades ago and collect some of those oral histories, I think that's, is a really important mm, way of being able to do it. Yeah, that's a good angle, isn't it? Because you know it is about um, change prompts people to tell stories, doesn't it? Um, particularly sort of reminiscing about the way things were and how they're, they're different now. It's that change and uh, trends over time which um, can be really powerful illustrators of why we are where we are at the moment and what the challenges are going forward. So, yeah, I I guess the answer to your question, Nikki, is that we, and perhaps Cywem, has a a part in this, really, is is to find those people that have a perspective, interact with water in various different ways and get them to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And our our role is to be the conduit for those stories, Mm -hmm. whether it's through podcasts or photographic competitions or any other manner of things that, that we could do. And I think one of the, the critical pieces is that Tamana Otawai is very place-based. Mm. You know, what it means to somebody in Auckland will be different to what it means to someone in Kaikoura or in, um, in Gore. Um, and so it's about how do you collect those stories from around the country because the receiving environment will have different capacity to cope with whatever's happening you know in in that environment and I think the multiple stories is quite important it's really interesting that I mean we talk about catchment management a little bit and it's kind of that in action isn't it but coming from a completely different perspective and there's a lot of news at the moment about the quality of chalk streams for example which is a very as a very precious and specific habitat that we we have a huge amount of them here in the UK in comparison to the rest of the world, but they're still very rare. And that's not the same as, as other rivers or other water environments. So it's very interesting thinking about, the, if you like, the oral history of in a place-based way related to water. That's not something I've ever really considered before, but it's fascinating. If I can turn us to something a little more practical, maybe just to conclude. So I mean, it sounds wonderful. Terry and I are clearly captivated. Mm. Are there any risks that you're perceiving at this early stage with Tamana Otawai being so integral to water reform? I think there is a thirst for information. There will be a real role for Mataranga Māori practitioners, mm-hmm. people who can um, reflect what it 
what Tamana Otoai means to the iwi or the hapu, the subtribe, in a particular region. We will need to be able to support them to be able to articulate what it means. And certainly when you look at the number of roles that will be required, I mean, I've seen figures that, you know, might talk about 6,000 Mataranga Māori practitioners being required across different government, different, you know, governance arrangements across environmental reforms and the water reforms. Now, that's an awful lot of people. Yeah. And they don't exist in those roles at the moment. Mm. But there is also going to be a need for organisations that are working in water to increase their understanding of Māori worldviews. There is a real need to increase and support everyone to increase their understanding of of te te Māori, the Māori worldview. Well, when does water reform happen? feels like that's coming in the next 12 to 18 months, is that right? The plan is that the changeover date will be 1 July 2024. We've got a number of hurdles to get through. Mm -hmm. We've got the Water Service Entities Bill is before the House at the moment, or before Select Committee. I think the report back is the 11th of November. This year, we would hope that that piece of legislation will be passed before Christmas. But then there needs to be a second piece of legislation, which will then ultimately say what these organisations, what their specific assets are. There's a lot more definitions work that needs to go in. That will be, I imagine, introduced early next year. We're also expecting a third piece of legislation around um, the establishment of an economic regulator. Right. Why? Which is a really new concept for the water sector. Mm -hmm. We've never had it. The Commerce Commission, which is our competition um, authority, does economic regulation for gas, electricity, telecoms, airports. We haven't had a decision at this stage in terms of whether they will be that party Mm -hmm. that will do the economic regulation but one of the pieces that certainly water new zealand has been saying to the officials that are drafting the policy is you need to make sure that the concept of tamana or tawai because it's in the regulation for tomato arawai and will be in the water services legislation must be part of the economic regulatory regime Mm. because otherwise you can imagine having a conversation about i need to spend this much on a water treatment plant and, you know, that's going to give effect to Tamana or Tawai, and let's just throw some numbers, $20 million. Mm-hmm. But the economic regulator says, but I don't have that. Mm-hmm. I'm only giving you $15 million. Yeah. And so you need to make sure that you've got a level playing field of expectation management. I hope you'll come back at some point and join us on Planet Possible and we can find out a little bit more about water reform as it progresses, Gillian. Be very keen to. Thank Brilliant. you very much. No, it's, it's been a pleasure to be here. An absolute delight. So all it leaves me to say is a massive thank you to Gillian and to Terry. And uh, join us again soon for another episode of Planet Possible. That's it for now. Stay safe, everyone. Mm